Last summer, my family and I had the privilege of visiting the Grand Canyon for the first time. And if you've ever visited the Grand Canyon and seen the views, you know why they call it the Grand Canyon. Um, it, it is spectacular. I mean, this is a canyon you can see from outer space. It's over 277 miles long, 18 miles wide, and over a mile deep. And I was actually a little surprised when we got there. You can actually go up to the canyon's edge and like look over and see down hundreds, if not thousands of feet down. And, and don't get me wrong. I mean, when you're at the lookout spots and the developed areas, I mean, they have guardrails. There are signs everywhere warning you about the dangers of people every year who fall into the canyon to their death. Actually, about five people every year die falling into the Grand Canyon. There's even a, a book at the gift shop that you can buy that, ex, that details the stories of every person who's died on record uh, who's fallen into the canyon. And, uh, you know, um, I, I, I wanted to get the full experience of the Grand Canyon, and I'm a bit of a hiker. I heard their warnings, but you know what? I, I wasn't contented to be there, you know, where the shuttle drops you off and take your pictures with everybody. I wanted, like, the real Grand Canyon experience, right? I wanted the raw canyon. And so the next morning, we had plans to take this trail. It's called the Bright Angel Trail, where you can actually go into the canyon. But at the time, it was getting late this afternoon, and I was gonna, I wanted to walk. I was going to have to settle for the canyon rim trail, okay? And it's a paved trail that goes along the rim. It's well protected in many areas. But as you walk along this trail, um, you, you can actually get to places where the canyon is actually very much exposed. So I rallied the troops, my wife and kids. I said, hey, we're going to go for a hike. And so we take the canyon rim trail. And so we trek along. I think we're about a mile into the trail. And there's this point where it splits off. Like, like I think it's called Pima Point, like where the canyon juts out. And the trail, there's a distinct fork in the road. There's the, the, the prescribed path, the paved path. I mean, you can see the road there where the shuttle's going. But then there was this other path, a very intriguing looking trail, right? And I was like, all right, finally, here comes the adventure, right? Here's the trail that we should take, folks. I took a little convincing, but I'm like, come on, family, let's go down this trail. This is where going to be a fun adventure. And as we're walking down this little dirt trail, it's like a single track row. Um, you know, my wife is instantly asking, is, are you sure this is the right way? Um, and I'm like, oh yeah, no, no, this is going to be a great trail. I mean, and I'm just loving it. And we're right there along the trail. And like, you can picture it. Here's the canyon. We're walking right here and you could just see down. You could feel the weight of the canyon, like the depth of it, the, the gravitas of the, of the rocks. And I, I'm, I'm loving it. And I look back at my wife and kids, they're, they're not liking this at all. They're looking nervous. Um, you know, at this point, we're actually like single file holding each other's hands as we're walking along the edge. And my wife just has enough. She says, I'm out. I'm taking the kids. You are crazy. Like, and, I, and she goes. And I have to admit, like at that point, I was a little annoyed. Like, I was like, you're wrecking this adventure. This is awesome. This is what it's all about. And so she takes the kids to safer ground, and I keep going. So I'm walking along this trail. Now it's like going down to like a little, it almost looks like an animal trail now, like a little bit wider than, a, you know, a bike tire. And it's getting pretty sketchy. And I, I start to realize as I'm like half inch away from falling into the canyon and being another statistic, I start to realize all the warnings that I heard 
heard at the nature center. And I'm like, you know what? It's probably best if I don't keep going down this road. So I go back and I, you know, I, I, I joined the wife and the kids. I had to climb a few boulders to get back. And then, you know, of course, she's giving me an earful of how I risked everybody's life. And, you know, I'm sitting there as we're walking back on the pay path, reflecting. And I was just thinking about how I had ignored all the wisdom right? All the warnings of the people who knew this place the best. I mean, they've seen this play out before and they, did, they were warning me, but I ignored it. I thought I had a better path, a more exciting, a more adventurous path. Um, but you know what? That was the wrong path. And it's unfortunate um, that many people make that same mistake with life. I mean, there is the, the way that God has prescribed in his word. And then there's what we think is the better path, the fun, the exciting path, okay? We, we ignore the wisdom and warnings in his word um, um, and, and don't take the way that he has uh, laid out for us. It reminds me of Proverbs uh, fourteen twelve. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. See, the Bible makes it pretty clear. There's a right path and there's a wrong path. There's a way to blessing and there's a way to perishing. And thankfully, God has given us everything we need to know about the way of blessing in this life and the life to come. And there's probably no better description of it than Psalm 1. Will you open your Bibles, grab your Bibles, and open it up to page 448, and let's look at Psalm 1, which has been rightly called by many uh, their, their favorite book. And it really is an introduction to the whole Psalter. The, it's, a, it, it's theme as, as big as the entire Bible as it presents these two distinct paths, the path to blessing and the path to perishing, as we'll come to call it the way of the world and the way of the word. And really the clear goal of the psalmist is to teach us the way to blessedness and warn us of the way of destruction. Please read it with me here. This is Psalm 1, page 448. Read it with me. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I think it would be good for us to start with a definition of a, what, what it means to be blessed, right? I mean, that's a, that's a, a, a word that we throw a lot around a lot, especially here at church. What does it mean to be blessed. Well, if you look at the Hebrew word, it literally means to be happy, uh, to have good fortune, to have things go well with you uh, or for you, and to, to have a joyful mind. And in, in the, the New Testament equivalent in the Greek, it's, it means the same thing. Um, and here, the word is actually in the plural, uh, denoting a multiplicity of blessings um, or an intensification of them. See, what we have to realize is, is Psalm 1, like the rest of the Psalms, which many of you know, right? These are songs. 
right? You could even tell the way it's laid out in this kind of poetic poetry type form. Um, but unlike our songs that rhyme phonetically, right? Like rhyme and time or, or cat and mat. These songs, these songs rhyme with idea or the meaning of each line. And so we call this Hebrew parallelism. And Psalm 1 verse 1, as we look at it, is a great example of this where there's really uh, two linked lines together and they're really expressing the same idea in a different way. But in Psalm 1 1, what we actually have is three linked lines. So let's look at it a little bit closer here. Uh, who are the happy people? Who are the blessed ones? Look at what it says here. It's the ones who walk not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So these are all expressing kind of the same idea. Um, happy, blessed are those who avoid these kind of worldly associations. But if we look even closer at it, what we're going to see is there is kind of, you can see a downward progression here or a degrees of association with the world. And so what we're going to do here at the top, at your top of your notes here, we have a little chart. We're going to build a little chart here to help us see the parallel ideas and this progression a little bit more. So let's start with the word walk. Right, do we have our chart up here? So go ahead and just, we, we got, we're going to go work our way down in terms of first, second, and third degree. We got walking, which of course means to go or travel towards something, right? To stand is to remain or endure there a period of time. Whereas this word sit um, really could actually be in, uh, translated to inhabit or to dwell, really implying a longer duration of time. So perhaps we can see that progression, right, as we go from walking to standing to sitting. Um, just think about it like even on the way in here, as you were talking to uh, uh, people, hopefully on the way in, and maybe you greeted them as you were walking, right? You can say hi to them, you can express a few ideas, but you're walking, there's not much association there. That would be different if you stuck around and talked to somebody and stand there in the fellowship hall and had a conversation, right? There would be more influence, more exchange going on. And still even, even more would be if you were to sit down later this afternoon with someone for a lunch or you had them over to your house for dinner, right? There would be an increasing level of an engagement and exchange as you go from walking to standing to sitting. Of course, counsel, right? We know what counsel is, right? That is to get advice, right? Or, or being told the way to do something. And then we have the way um, and we have the seat, which kind of are kind of the parallels uh, idea in terms of counseling, right? To get advice, to, to tell someone what to do, kind of going with the other terms, okay? Next on your chart, we have the wicked, the wicked are those who, who live like there is no God and really who are engaged in doing things that are against God's standard, which is very similar to sinners, which uh, is our next one. So there's not much of a progression in those, and those are tough to distinguish, uh, so we don't want to make too much of that. But the last term there, the scoffer, right? The scoffer is the one who is showing no respect, right? Who's looking at something with contempt. He's making fun of. He's looking down on the, way, the ways of God, God himself, those who follow him. He's, he's mocking. He's ridiculing them. 
Okay, and so if we look at that, wicked sinner scoffer, perhaps we can see that progression from those who live like there's no God to those who are, who are doing his, his, uh, things against his commands to those who are actually mocking him, right? And even uh, trying to promote this anti-God kind of state of mind. So let's summarize it this way, to ho- hopefully to make this uh, become even more clear. So to walk in the counsel of the wicked, let's put it down this way, that's to accept its advice. So accepting its advice would kind of be the first layer of this worldliness association. And to stand in the way of sinners would actually then be to now be participating in its ways. Okay? And then to sit in the seat of scoffers, now we're actually the ones promoting its attitude. All right? So really our psalm here starts with a warning. Happy are those who don't do these things, who don't accept the world's advice, who don't participate in its way, or even look to those who are promoting its attitude. We're going to call this the way of the world. And so point number one in your notes, I I would like you to write it down like this. Avoid the way of the world. Avoid the way of the world. And note from our chart there, those three levels of association, of accepting its advice to actually in, in engaging or participating in its ways or watching people do that and then promoting its attitude. And if we looked throughout the Bible, of course, there would be all kinds of warnings about who we associate with because whatever shapes our thinking shapes our life. Let me just uh, uh, give you a reference. We won't turn there, but I'll put it up on the screen. 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-three. You, you probably have heard this uh, proverb before. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And so really that idea of company is to associate with w- one another. There, there is an implication of a close spatial proximity. The closer you get to it, the more the corruption is going to happen. Okay, and see, back in the day when this was written, of course, to be in the company of someone, you actually had to be physically present with them. And of course, that is true today. But actually, the word here in the Greek is homilia, uh, which can also refer to the spoken message or the communications among people. Do we not have a lot of ways to communicate with people today that they didn't have back then? I mean, don't we have really an unlimited amount of input that we are receiving from the world through the, the media that we ingest? I mean, all the way from traditional sources like TV and movies and music, the books and magazines that we read. But now, I mean, with technology, right, we've got the internet and our phones. We've got the news feed constantly updating stories on the hour. We've got Instagram posts. We've got Facebook. We've got podcasts. We've got blogs. I mean, there is all kinds of worldly influence coming our way. And I wonder how much of our mind is being shaped by the world. Have you done And I would encourage you to do an inventory on how much of the media input are you getting? How much worldly input are you getting every day? I know the stats uh, for Americans. I mean, it's pretty well published out there that Americans basically consume an average of five hours of TV per day. Okay, five hours of TV per day. That's a lot of 
input. And if we include those other sources, okay, if we're including, right, looking at Facebook and all the media and the blogs and every kind of media input, there was a Nielsen report in 2018 that cites the average media consumption of an American is an 11 hours per day. I mean, that is a lot of input, and I would assume that those numbers apply somewhat to the people in this room. And so if we think about that, that means there are multiple hours per day that we are hearing advice from the world, that we are watching people engage in sinful activity, that we are listening or even uh, reading about people who are actually uh, promoting this worldly attitude and mocking the ways of God. And don't be deceived, 1 Corinthians says, don't be deceived into thinking that you won't be influenced if you have that much exposure to something. I recently got a, uh, a puppy. I don't know if you've heard this, but I've got a black Labrador puppy. If you know anything about Labrador retrievers, they need a lot of exercise. I mean, this guy's got a lot of energy. We have needed to now start walking him uh, both in the morning and the evening. And as we've gotten more outside into our community, as we've walked our dog, we notice that he is not the only black mammal out there especially at dusk and so some of you guys know what i'm talking about right you know those black mammals that have the white stripe on their back yeah there are skunks in huntington beach folks okay um and when we were walking him the other night uh, we were warned at, at the park that hey there was a there's a skunk up ahead just be careful and when my wife and i we were walking with the kids and we heard that there was a skunk Oh, you know what we did? We were like, okay, we're going this way, right? We're, go, we're avoiding that thing like it's the plague because I've had a dog who's gotten skunk before. I don't know if you've had this experience, but it smells terrible. It, it is a nightmare trying to get that smell out of their fur. It can stink up your whole house, right? It stinks it up for days. I was not going to let my puppy get near him, right? I wasn't going to go up to the skunk and just kind of, well, you know, start looking at him and bringing him into my house and, you know, because I know the closer we, I got to the skunk, right? The closer we get to skunks, the more likely we're going to get sprayed by them, right? The more likely they're going to stink up our life. I mean, that's the way we should look at the influence of this world. It's ways, it's advice, it's attitude. If we stay around it long enough, right, it's going to, it's going to spray us. It's going to affect us. It's going to corrupt us. Um, and I realize we can't completely avoid worldly associations, right? I mean, we live in this world, right? But remember, we're called not to be of this world. I mean, you'd have to leave this world if you were to avoid all worldly influence. But I wonder how much of that exposure is actually voluntary. How much are we actually, you know, readily exposing ourselves to, okay? And let's not forget, we're called to influence the world, right? Not to have the world influence us. And make no mistake, the world is trying to influence us. It is trying to influence us. So let me uh, turn you to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 makes this pretty clear. If you know anything about the book of Romans, you know that this is Paul's masterpiece of the gospel message. And the first 11 chapters basically lay out the gospel message in, in beautiful detail, like no other book in the Bible. But chapter 12, there's a turn in the book, as many of you know. 12 through 16, it really gets into the practical implications of the gospel message. And so right out of the gate, we see the Apostle Paul um, really concerned about what is shaping our thinking. This is on page 947, Romans chapter 12. Let's just look at verse 2. Notice what it says. It says, do not be conformed to this world 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, to conform is really to shape or to mold one's behavior to match a particular standard. We have to realize that this world is trying to conform us to its standard. It's trying to get, its, get us to think like everybody else. It's trying to mold us. And it made me think of when my daughters were younger, they would play with this stuff called Play-Doh. I know we all know what Play-Doh is, right? You can take that stuff and you can take it in your hands and you can mold it and you can shape it. They even have tools, right, where you can make little animals or little objects or that, that press, you know, that Play-Doh press. You've seen that where you put the Play-Doh in and you pull the handle and then it squeezes it out, right, into a different shape and you can change that shape. I mean, that is the picture. The world is trying to compress us and squeeze us into its shape or mold. And really, in the Greek, the, pres- it's in, the verb is in the present tense, but it's in the passive form, which really implies that if you do nothing about it, it will happen. Okay, catch that. Do nothing, it will happen. Much like if you were to take a leaf and put it in a stream of water, right? The, the water would take it, and the leaf would go down the stream. It would go with the flow. See, that's what we have to uh, realize about the world's influence. If we do nothing about it, we will conform to its standard. We will go with the flow. We, we need to do something about it. And, and Paul makes it pretty clear, does he not? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. See, we need to get our mind out of the influence of this world. We need to get it on to God's word. That is the antidote, and that is exactly what Psalm 1 teaches us. So let's go ahead and turn back to Psalm 1. Now that we've talked about the negative, uh, let's talk about the positive, right? So the psalmist warns us, don't be influenced by this world. Avoid it. But here we have the positive. This is where we need to focus our minds. And note the contrast, right? Uh, In verse 2, it says, but his delight is is in the law of the Lord. He's not looking to the world and its advice, he, uh, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And you know what the word to, to delight is, right? To, to delight is to take pleasure or enjoyment in something because it is desirable. It's something that you want to look to. And you might you know, be confused, as many people have been in the past, right? Where how can you delight in law, right? How can you delight in the law? Well, the Hebrew word there for law is Torah, right? Torah. And the Torah really is the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? So at the time of this psalm was written, right, that was the entirety of Scripture. And you'll notice the, the law there, right, the word there, there's a little number two there. Another way you could translate this is instruction or direction. See, blessed are those who take pleasure in following the instructions of the word and not the instructions of this world. That's how we should look at it. And any good instruction, any good instructions is, is going to include things you should do and things that you should not do. And I trust that you have delighted in instruction uh, in the past, um, perhaps if you were learning to do something. A, a number of years ago, I uh, uh, was invited to be a surf instructor at a junior high camp. 
okay? And so I was trying to teach junior high uh, students how to surf. Um, and being an educator for many years and working with high school and even junior high students, I know how hard it is to get the attention of junior high boys, okay? This is not an easy thing to do, okay? To get their attention uh, can be very difficult. You know when it wasn't really difficult to get their attention? When they wanted to learn how to surf, right? They were listening very intently to my instructions when I was telling them, hey, when you're on your board and you're paddling, don't be too far back on that board or you're never going to catch a wave right? If you're too far forward when you're paddling, you're going to take a nosedive right into the sand, right? When you stand up, you want your foot right there in the middle, right along the stringer, not on the side. If it's on the side, guess what? You're going to wipe out and look like a fool in front of all those girls that you're trying to impress, right? Um, And so they were listening. They delighted in that instruction. Why? Because they knew it was going to be a more enjoyable experience in the water when they were surfing if they paid attention. See, when it comes to the scripture, it's not just a better and happier life here, okay? The scriptures lead us to God himself. Remember verse 6 of our psalm? For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, right? It's not just that he knows about, he cares about. There's a concern. There's a relationship there between the Lord and the righteous. Psalm 16:11. Uh, you can just jot that reference down. I'll just read it for you. It says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, that path, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, that's why he can meditate on it day and night and delight in the law. Because the path of the word, the instructions of God, lead us to God. Okay? And and the the idea of meditation there, we, we should probably clarify that too. So meditate on it. We probably have, many of us, the wrong idea of meditation because meditation in this world means you go to a quiet place, right? You find a nice rock right out in the woods. Maybe you sit down with your legs crossed, your arms up, and you just kind of, you try to clear your mind, right? Um, that is not what it's saying here, okay? To, to meditate, if we were to look at uh, Psalm 2, verse 1, where it says, the people's plot in vain, that word plot and meditate in the Hebrew are the exact same word, okay? So when we plot something, right, we're giving serious thought to it. We're pondering it. We're pouring over it in our mind. We are considering something deeply. So in the Bible, meditation is not turning your minds off, right? No, it's turning your mind on. And it might surprise you when I first uh, looked up this word in, in the lexicon, in the Hebrew lexicon, the first thing that comes to mind is, or comes up is the, is for the definition is to growl, okay? That's right, to growl, like a lion growls over his prey in Isaiah 31, 4. See, in other places, it's to mutter or to moan or to make low sounds, okay? Now, I've never seen a lion growl over its prey, okay? But I have seen, as you know, I'm into dogs, right? I've seen some dogs chew up some bones, and I'm not talking like, uh, like milk bones, you know? I'm talking about like the real femur bones that you get from the butcher shop, the cow femurs with like meat hanging off, maybe a little blood dripping down. I mean, at Thanksgiving time, my family, we have a, a tradition, we would give our dogs these, these cow femurs just to keep them out, occupied and out of, our, out of our way, right? And when those dogs get those bones, the intensity in their face, 
I mean, you, you, this is something you have to behold. They get that bone and they start chewing it. They start working it over. And there is all, with a tenacity, kind of like an intensity in, in their chewing. And they're making all kinds of grunts and groans of doggy delight as they consume and devour the, these bones. And I had, we had this nice dog. I mean, the nicest dog I've ever had. His name was Bailey growing up. He's a sweet, kind dog. But you give him that bone, oh man, he gets intense. Okay? And he's growling, and he's going at it, and he's going for it. And just for fun, because he's such a sweet dog, my, my dad would try to, you know, just kind of just for fun, he would come up behind him and grab him by the hips and just kind of give him a little tug like he was going to pull him away. And as soon as you gave him a little tug, right, like he would brace, his muscles would tighten up, and he'd, he'd be, and you could actually just like, like a light switch, turning it off and on. You could turn on the growl, and you'd go, right, you let go, he, he stops, you do it again, right? And so, yeah, I mean, he was intense, like, and he would just work that thing over and over again, and I've seen the same thing with my puppy, my puppy, my dog, uh, his name is Zeke, and I'm trying to teach him how to be well-behaved and have good manners, um, and he's doing a pretty good job at this, and I'm reading the books about positive reinforcement and all this, but there's one thing I'm having trouble. I don't know if any of you dog owners have this trouble. It's hard for me to get him to come when I want him to, right? If he's sniffing something, man, he's into that, and I want him to be able to come to me when, I've, when I call him, right on, on demand. Um, and so I've been looking into it, and, and basically what I've been reading is, you know what, you, you got to give better incentives, right? You got to up your treat game, okay? I've been giving him some good, I thought were good treats. It's like, no, no, you got to use real meat, okay? And when I started using real meat, and I play this thing called the meat game with my dog, we, we, we have this thing where, you know, I basically kind of walk away from him, he comes, and I reward him with meat, and now I'm starting to use the command. We play the meat game. Oh, when he gets that meat, his, I mean, his whole disposition changes, and he, he's intense because he loves the meat. Um, and it's almost to a fault now. Because it's like now when I'm just even walking by the refrigerator and I open the door and there's some kind of, you know, rumbling of a drawer opening or sound crinkling of a, a bag. I mean, this guy could be in a dead sleep and he's instantly alert, like looking at me. Is it the meat game? Are we ready to go? It's like, um, it's like he's thinking about it all the time, right? I don't know. I can't get into his mind, but it's like, when's the next meat game? You know, it's like he's even like dreaming about meat. So let's put it down this way. When it comes to God's word, we got to fixate our minds on the meat, right? Fixate your mind on the meat. And those of you who know, know your, your Bible, right, you know that this, this motif for food and God's word is, is a very common motif, right? This picture is throughout the word. You can jot down uh, 1 Peter 2, verses 2 and 3. Um, I'll just read them for you. It says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into your salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. See, babies, they crave milk, right? They need it. They, they, they cry out for it, right? Because they know, I mean, instinctively, they need it to grow and develop and to mature. And of course, we, we don't want to feed our babies milk forever. Eventually, we want them to move on to some solid food. We want them to start eating some real meat. And same thing with the Bible, Right? Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 13 and 14. You might jot that down. I'll read it for you. It says, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food, the meat, is for the mature, for those who had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from 
evil. So like an animal that thinks about desires and who delights, enjoys that meat, blessed are those who have that same kind of hunger for the word, who are thinking about it uh, day and night. They're, it's constantly on their mind. They look to it. They, they want to chew on it to absorb its nutrition. Uh, they can't wait for the next meat time. Turn with me, please, to Joshua chapter 1, and I'll show you an, another passage where the same concept is highlighted. Joshua chapter 1. Uh, you know after the death of Moses that the baton or the torch has been passed to Joshua to lead the people into the promised land. And of course, this is a big task for Joshua, right? He's filling the shoes of Moses. But notice what God says to him to encourage him uh, as he goes in to, to, con to make the conquest into Cana. Look at Joshua chapter 1. This is on page 178. We're going to look at verses 6 through 8. He says, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the Torah, the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Why? For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So how is Joshua going to have good success? How is he going to be prosperous? Well, this book was supposed to be on his mind, on his lips. He was to meditate on it day and and night and why was that so he would know what to do so he could put it into practice and be careful to do all that is written in it right so he would know the right way to go he would know uh for example as it says in hebrews how to distinguish good from evil in the words of romans that he would understand what the will of god is what is good and acceptable and perfect see we can't expect to know that unless our mind is fixated on it that it's it, it's saturated in our in our thoughts then we will know what to do uh james 125 we'll put it on the screen you can jot this down is a great reference it says the one who looks into the perfect law he looks intently into it the law of liberty and perseveres be knowing hearer who forgets but a doer who acts notice this he will be blessed in his doing. You want a more happy life? You want more blessed, uh, blessing in your doing? Look intently at God's instructions. He's given us the way, and we should follow them. And I, I want you to honestly compare the amount of time you spend looking intently into the word with how much time you are being exposed to other influences of media and of this world is it any wonder that some of us are not happier and when we're we're not experiencing this blessedness from god if we're not putting our mind in the word and we're getting so much input from the world i mean if some of us let's just be honest if we could fixate on god's word like we fixate on our phones i trust we would be much happier people See, we all know how it works when it comes to our physical health, right? You are what you eat, right? So what we need to think about our emotional and spiritual health, we are what we think. 
We need to get our minds in the Scripture. We need to turn up the volume of His Word. We need to turn down the volume of this world. Now turn with me to Psalm 119, and let's look at someone who has his mind fixated on the meat and he, who is experiencing the benefits of this. So Psalm 119, many of you know this is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's got 150 verses. Every single one of these verses mentions the Scripture. Okay, and it's going to use different synonyms. If you read this uh, throughout the week, you're going to see synonyms for the Scripture, His Word, His testimonies, His commands, His laws, His precepts, His statutes, His rules. I mean, there's many different ways we're talking about His Word right here. And look at it, what it says in Psalm 119 in verses 1 through 3. We'll just do a, a quick sample of a few verses. It says, blessed, again, same idea here, are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. Look how it's put in verse uh, 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Verse 24. Keep, let's keep reading. Your testimonies, again, are my delight. They are my counselors. They're, they're, they're the ones I'm looking to for advice. Verse 35 and 37. He says, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. I mean, how much... Are we pondering God's word? Can we say like the psalmist that we delight in his testimonies, that they are our counselors? I mean, one great way to meditate on God's word, it's not the only way, but it's a great way, is to memorize his word. Okay? And this is something I think a lot of us uh, have lost here in the church today. Memorizing his word allows us to keep it with us all day and night. We can pour over that verse in our minds and chew on it throughout the day and notice and even in verse 11 here psalm 119 11 he says i have stored up your word in my heart that i might not sin against you right see whatever shapes our thinking it's going to shape our behavior i wonder when's the last time you memorized a verse of scripture and some of you are saying well you know my memory is terrible i don't can't memorize you know and, and i get it you know i know some some of us are not uh, maybe naturally inclined to, to memorize things or our memories going down from where it was. But we've got to understand our memory is like a muscle, right? And just like when you go to the gym, you might not be stronger than everybody in there, but you can get stronger from where you're at right now, right? There's a, you could, there is some improvement that can be had. And so I would encourage you, take a verse this week, start small, right? Just like you would in the gym. You're not going to start with trying to bench 300 pounds, right? You're going to start light and then you're going to work your way up. But start chewing on God's word. Uh, get it in your mind. Go over it and see if you don't uh, experience some of the benefits. And I mean, isn't that what keeps you going in the gym, right? You go to the gym because you want to see the results. Well, the, the results of a mind that is fixated on God's word right? It, our psalm is saying is blessedness, right? Is happiness, is joy. Turn back with me to Psalm chapter 1, because what we're going to see here is how the uh, psalmist now poetically paints these two different ways and how they play out in life. 
See, we have the way of the word, right? We have the way of the world. Blessed are those who, who avoid that way of the world, right? And they're fixated on God's word. And see, uh, we often think of blessing as a reward or something that God gives us, which again, is, can certainly be true. Don't get me wrong. But really the picture here in the psalm, which we need to understand, is that blessedness is not a reward, but it's a result of a particular way of living. It's the one who delights in his law, right? Who's not consumed by the things of this world, who is meditating on his word day and night. Notice how it's put here poetically in verse three. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. See, such a tree is going to thrive and grow to maturity. Its leaves don't wither because it's got a constant intake of nutrition. It's got a constant flow of water. And so its growth can be steady and continuous as it gets stronger and develops. See, and that's not to say that everything is uh, peachy and perfect in the environment. No, that's, the, the environment could, be, could, be, could not be good. It could, there could be a time of drought. There could be pests. There could be all kinds of, of hazards. But see, the tree that's planted by the streams of water, see, it's going to thrive despite those because its vitality is not determined by the weather. It's determined by where it is planted. See, where it is planted is symbolic of being planted in God's word. And it reminds me, of one of my favorite places that I love to visit every year, pretty much my family goes to this place called Bass Lake, okay, Bass Lake, California. It's up by uh, Yosemite in the Western Sierra Mountains. Um, and if you if tracking with uh, anything, you know that we've had drought, not recently, but uh, you know, in the uh, last several years, there's been a, a, a historic drought that has caused many of the pine trees to die from what is known as a bark beetle infestation. And this is a, 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 a terrible thing that's happening to the pine trees um, because normally a tree that has enough water, if it's getting enough uh, input, if, it, if it's absorbing enough uh, nu- nutrients, it's able to produce this resinous pitch that goes to the bark. And as the beetles try to get in, this resinous pitch basically blocks them and they can't get into the living part of the tree. But see, when there's a period of drought, these beetles uh, the, uh, can get in because the tree's not able to produce enough of this protective pitch. And, and that's what's happening right now. Uh, since 2010, the U.S. Forest Service estimates that over 120 million trees have died in just the state of California National Forest due to bark beetle infestations. And my favorite place, Bass Lake, has been hit hard. Over, uh, in some places, two-thirds of the pine trees have basically are now gone. But you know what? Not all of them are gone, okay? There are trees that still stand. You know which ones are still standing? The ones that were planted by water, okay? Not all of them, but many of the ones that were planted by streams, that were are planted by the lake, those trees are still able to survive, to grow, to mature, to bear fruit because of where they are planted, despite all the pests, despite the dry, dry conditions, because they are planted by 
the water source. And of course, most of the trees, as I mentioned, uh, aren't, weren't so fortunate. And, and you can tell that they're, if they're still standing, you can tell they're dead. They've gone from green to brown. I mean, that's the first indicator. And then after a period of time, after we've gone there the last few years, you can notice now we've just got basically a skeleton tree, just, you know, just the trunk, and there's no leaves anymore then eventually those trees are going to fall over, or in many cases they've been chopped down uh, uh, so they don't fall on people or houses, um, and they're trying to clear that area because there could be a fire that, that comes through. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the picture that we have here. See, there's, there's, a, there's a mature tree planted by the water, but notice in verse, uh, if we keep reading in verse 4, the wicked are not so, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. So whatever benefits have been described for the fruitful tree don't apply to this second group. See, the wicked, they're like chaff, okay? And, and, and so what we got a picture here is in Israel, the threshing floor. So I don't know if you know this, but this is where they would separate uh, and, and try to harvest the wheat. So these places, the threshing floor, were often on hilltops where it would catch a good breeze and they would dry up the wheat and then put it on the threshing floor, and then they'd have animals walk on it, or they'd have instruments to crush it, and basically they're separating the grain from the stalks, the straw, and the, and the husks of the grain. And so what they would do then is after they crushed it, they would throw it up in the air, and as they throw it up in the air, the heavier seeds would fall to the floor, and then the chaff, right, would then, and the, the straw and the husk, it would be carried away in the wind. Um, and so they would then gather the grain and then those husks, right? The useless straw was then thrown away or even burned, okay? So th- that contrast is pretty striking. You've got the thriving, healthy, bountiful tree and then you've got the useless straw. And really that's uh, symbolic of the sy- stable and productive life versus the futility and emptiness of those who don't know God and follow his way. And note the ultimate end and separation for those, um, those two groups of people. If we keep on, uh, keep on reading, it says, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. See, these two paths could not end up in two different destinations. Just like if you notice the first word of the psalm and the last word, right? We've got blessing and then we've got perishing. See, one of these paths leads to happiness and closeness to God. Verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The other leads to separation from God and his judgment. So let's put it down for point number three like this. Let's ponder how the paths play out. We need to ponder how the paths play out because there's two distinct endings to this story. And as you write that point down, I'd like you to turn to another passage in our last passage today, Jeremiah chapter 17. So write that point down and turn. This is on page 645. You've got to see this because this is such an interesting uh, uh, parallel to Psalm 1. So very striking in its similarities, just showing us the unity of God's word. This is Jeremiah 17. He's writing in this con- uh, context to Judah, addressing Judah's sin. And really, he's going to contrast the man who trusts in the Lord and the man who is trusting in man, right? The one who is on the, uh, the path of blessing, the one who's on the path to perishing, as Psalm 1, 
would put it. So look at it. This is on page 645, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse number 5. It says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like, notice this, a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. It's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. See, the one who trusts in the Lord and his way is tapping into the limitless life of God. So he can not only endure the drought and the harsh conditions, right? He can thrive. He can stand firm. He can bear fruit. However, the one who trusts in man, notice how it's described here. The picture is like a tumbleweed, right? Like he is dried up, like a dried up shrub. This tumbleweed or shrub, you can think of it blowing across the desert floor. That empty, light, weightless, useless life. He is cursed and not see, he shall not see any good come. See, the Bible makes it pretty clear that there are really two categories of people. Those who trust in the Lord and those who don't. Those who are on the right path and those who are on the wrong path. So I got to say, I mean, if you are realizing you are on that wrong path, I mean, notice how this path plays out. And let me urge you right now to change paths right now. I mean, it's like, it's like my wife. She noticed, hey, how this was going to play out on, on the edge of the Grand Canyon. Get off that path and get on the prescribed path of God. I mean, that's really what repentance is all about. Repentance is a turn from our sin to God. It's a turn from our path and following the way of the world to the path of God, to, to, to following His way and the way He has laid out, His prescribed way. And know, please know that that is really God's desire. Notice how he puts it in Ezekiel 18, 23. You don't have to turn there. Just let me read it for you. It says, this is God speaking. He says, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. That's what God wants. He wants us to turn from our way to his way, to the right path that has been paved and made perfect by Jesus Christ. See, as God, Jesus, it, it, he, he said, right, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he has lived out that perfect life that you and I have not lived. He died on the cross, taking the punishment for our sin. And then he rose from the dead to give us a new life. Put your trust in him to save you. Get on his path. His path is the path of blessedness. But for those of us who uh, are on the right path, we got to just ask, why would we look and spend so much time looking towards those whose way we know is so clear, right? We know the way of the wicked will perish. We need to get our minds off the world. We need to get it on God's word. See, as a teacher for many years, uh, and now as a parent, I've always urged my kids to try their best in school. See, I understand 
uh, I'll just call it the law of school, kind of how this works, right? We, we, we know how this works, right? We have our kids try hard in school. Why? Because we want them to get good grades. Why do we want them to get good grades? Well, eventually, that's going to help them get into college. Why do we want them to go to college? Maybe that'll help them get a better job and make a better, better living, right, and have a happier life. See, what we need to see is here is the law of blessedness. See, blessedness, according to Psalm 1, is a result of a certain way of living. It comes when we avoid the influence of this world and we get our minds fixated on God's word. And I trust if you resolve to do this this week, um, see if you don't experience more of the blessing that God has intended. Turn down the volume of this world. Turn up the volume of God's word and see your happiness. I trust it will increase. Let me pray for us right now as we close. Father, uh, God, we do thank you for your word and how clear it is. God, thank you that you've given us the prescribed way to blessing, to real happiness, God, to, to really knowing you, God. Thank you for this, this, uh, this text here today, God. I pray, God, that we would take it to heart, God, that we would really think about all the influence that we are being exposed to by the voices of this world, God, and we would block those out so we could spend more time hearing from your voice, God, hearing from your word, God, that we would, we would want it, we would delight in it, that we would meditate it on it day and night, God, knowing, God, that yours is the path to blessing. So we thank you, God, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.